imagine. But 78% of football players, 60% of basketball players go bankrupt within five years of leaving their sport. And much of that money can find its way into the hands of uh, distant family. Old friends, others who are, you know, all of a sudden really interested in a renewed relationship with those people right about after the draft. Does that make sense? Those players walk into uh, the windfall of monies, and before you know it, they have a whole bunch of people who want a piece of the pie. Um, some of them even, as I've looked into this, I, I googled this week, this, this week as you can tell. Um, I'm going to go ahead and use this microphone over here today, okay? Are we there? All right. That way we don't have a pop the whole time. So these players often have uh, family members, friends, who will then offer to work for them in a way of saying, hey, you know, you don't, you don't need all those people uh, getting after you for all your money, so what you need to do is hire me so that I can get your money <laughs> to make sure they don't get it. Isn't that, isn't that nice of them to do that? Uh, these players even, uh, a lot of people don't know this, I didn't know this until a couple days ago, but a lot of these players, they get drafted, they don't get their first paycheck in the NBA until November, but they get drafted over the summer, so guess what their wonderful agents do? They loan them money. So if they want to go buy that big house or that really nice car or buy their mom a, a new house or whatever, they can do it right away on the agent's dollar. And with the reality of having to pay them back with a good bit of interest, of course, right? There are even, uh, most NBA teams now have a person they hire to help their players learn how to pay bills. A lot of those, uh, they come into the league, the guys come into the league, they've never even heard of a water bill or an electric bill or a gas bill. And so they have to help these guys learn how to uh, take care of all of these finances that they've never been burdened with before, if you will. And many of them just don't do very well with that. And they lose the money about as fast as they brought it all in. Now, also, if you were to Google what to do if you win the lottery which I did, Google that. <laughs> I didn't win the lottery, right? I Googled that. You'd find a number of articles warning you of the many people who will feel entitled to portions of the money that had just been won. Uh, they encourage people who've just won the lottery to isolate themselves, to separate themselves from the public, and to prepare for the ensuing emotional and relational strains. More money, more problems, they say, right? Uh, that's what they're saying for these people. Good thing we won't have that problem. Now, Jesus. Jesus never had much money. But as we're about to see as we look into John 4, verses 43 to 54, uh, there, were, there was word spreading about his special abilities. People around his hometown, his home region, were starting to hear about the things that Jesus was able to do. And all of a sudden, Jesus had some new old friends. So let's look at John chapter 4 together, starting in verse 43. It says, After two days he departed for Galilee. This is the two days that he'd spent with the Samaritans. The Samaritans who were believing in him. 
put in their faith in him, who had called him the Savior of the world. After those two days with the Samaritans, he departed for Galilee. It says here, parenthetically in verse 44, it's kind of confusing as we look through it, but it'll make sense as we go along. It says, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So Jesus is going to Galilee for, because he's not going to be honored there. That doesn't seem to make sense, does it? Why would he do something like that? Uh, There'd be a familiarity with the people, uh, as opposed to saying, whoa, Jesus is here. They might say, oh, hey, Jesus, how are you doing today? And have that kind of a feel as he goes home. Uh, Was he going for a break, a little breather from all he had just done and all they had just seen? He certainly wasn't going to Galilee for the praise of man or to walk into a party thrown in his honor. Uh, But to make things perhaps more confusing, verse 45 says, So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. Never thrown a party for him before, but evidently today's the day. They welcomed him. What happened to no honor? Why did they all of a sudden want to welcome him and make a big deal out of his arrival? The next part of the verse tells us the answer. Having seen all that he had done. They welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. This might sound familiar to us, this thinking, this thought process. John 2, we read something just like this, verses 23 to 25. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, it says, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, Why? Because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Remember, there is a believing that is not believing. It was all about the signs and nothing of the Savior. Remember, too, in John 20 and 21, in those chapters, the Apostle John tells us that Jesus did way more than just these miracles. He did way more than he could even record, and so it's very likely that these Galileans had been aware of, of course, first the, the turning the water into wine at Cana at the wedding, and then the cleansing of the temple, and how amazing that was, and potentially other miracles that Jesus has already done that are already being reported amongst the people about him. So while it appears that the Galileans uh, were happy to see Jesus come to town, was it for honor that they received him? Were they welcoming him with honor? Did they believe, as the Samaritans had, that he was the savior of the world? Or did they believe in the miracles and nothing more? Uh, Check out John chapter 7, verses 3 through 5. It says this, So his brothers, Jesus' half-brothers, grew up in the same home with him. They said to him, Leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. They didn't question the works. Jesus' own brothers could not question the validity of the miracles that he was doing. They knew they were there. And they said to him, no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Which might sound like a that a boy encouragement, except for the fact that it says in verse 5, for not even his brothers believed in him. They were mocking him. They knew he was doing the miracles, and yet they gave him no honor. Even his own brothers 
were in this boat. So why the welcome from the Galileans? Why do people all of a sudden remember their old friendships with persons who have just won the lottery or had just been drafted into the pros? Why do people tell stories? They like to tell stories about the time they hung out with a famous or powerful person. Uh, imagine a Galilean saying, oh, Jesus, yeah, Jesus, uh, Jesus of Nazareth. Yeah, that one. Because there's lots of Jesuses back then. Realize that, right? He wasn't the only guy named Jesus there in that area. Joseph's son. I know him. Yeah, we go way back. Ooh, you do? Oh, we played together when we were kids and everything. You know, you don't say that about anybody, right? Only people that may give you some extra street cred. Well, Jesus is turning into that kind of a guy. Oh, Jesus, remember that time when I helped you and your dad with that one job? Yeah, how'd that go? Did it go well? Oh, I'm so glad. Hey, listen, my back's been bothering me. You think you could do something about that? I mean, I did help you. <laughs> Those kinds of relationships might be starting to bud with these people in Galilee. Is that honor? Is that a welcome that is a welcome with honor? We say no. Jesus went to Galilee expecting to receive no honor, and that's exactly what happened. Lots of attention, a hero's welcome, no honor, no saving faith. Uh, so far, if we, as we take a step back and think about John chapter 2, 3, and 4, uh, Jesus went to Jerusalem, right? And he was questioned. He went to Samaria and was eventually believed in. He went to Galilee and was seen as nothing more than a means for personal gain. Think about this now. The Jews in Jerusalem didn't believe. The Samaritans in Samaria believed. The Jews in Galilee, they're not believing. They're not believing. Now what do we see here? What would we see as a potential emphasis happening in these passages? Who are the people that shouldn't have followed Jesus? Who are the people that should have followed Jesus? And this emphasis is going to help us greatly as we look into the next verses. Check out verse 46. So he, Jesus, came again to Cana. This is where he turned the water into wine. In Galilee. He says that right in the very verse there, where he'd made the water into wine. And at Capernaum, at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now, on first look here, it just looks like there's another person here who wants to talk to Jesus and get him to heal somebody. He has a need. But there's two things that we need to make sure that we understand from these verses. The first one is the identity of this official. The word here, official, is the Greek word for an official who worked and served under the king. This isn't just any official. This is a royal official. Now think about this now. Who is the only king around in Judea or in Galilee at this point? The only person called king anything is King Herod. King Herod. Uh, king Herod, the guy that has John the Baptist martyred? Yeah, that guy. This man who just asked Jesus for this healing is a servant, um, an official of 
King Herod. Remember, King Herod uh, is called an Edomian, which is just a, the Greek version of the Old Testament Edomite. And the Edomites were descendants of Esau. Okay, so Rome knew what they were doing. Think about this. Who are we going to set over the Israelites to make sure that we can really stick it to them and they know that we're the ones in charge and they don't get what they want? Let's have a descendant of Esau be their king. That'll go great. So King Herod was not exactly loved by the Jewish people. This royal official then, being a uh, an official of King Herod, is either an Edomite he may be a descendant of Esau. He could have just been a Gentile from the area who's just working under him. Or, if he's a Jew, he's a disloyal Jew. He's very disloyal because he's partnered together with King Herod, uh, working together under the auspices of the Roman Empire. Now, having learned what we have so far about the people's responses to Jesus... What would you suspect? What would you suspect might be happening soon in this man's heart? He kind of looks like a shouldn't believe kind of a guy, doesn't he? So I wonder what's going to happen. <laughs> Second thing here in this passage is the question, "Who is you?" In verse forty-eight, Jesus said, "Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe." Who is Jesus talking to in this verse? It would seem like he was talking to Herod's official. It says there, he said to him, right? But then why would they use the plural form of you? See, in English, we can say you, and I can be talking to one of you, and I can say you, and I can be talking to you. And the only way we can figure out what that is is if we look at the context, the words around it. But in inflected languages like Greek, it it denotes whether it's a singular or a plural. And this is a plural. Have you ever talked to people while you're looking at a person? That's what Jesus was doing. Jesus looks at this man and kind of like think of the southerners and saying y'all, okay? He looks at this man and says, unless you all see miracles, you all will not believe. While he's Think about this. Make an eye contact with this one man. That's what's happening here. Uh, imagine the crowd gathering around, trying to get first dibs at the miracle worker, and then this Herodian official somehow makes it to the front and makes this request. And Jesus looks at him in the eye and says this. And the, the official may very well have been bewildered. Uh, the crowd, too. If they were playing a game of which one of these is not like the others, this guy would have stood out. He would have been picked was he being lumped in with these Galilean Jews? That'd be strange. I've never had that happen to me before. Uh, was Jesus saying no to him? Is this a test? What's going on? And regardless of the apparent confusion, whatever Jesus was trying to do or to say, this official was undeterred. As if saying, I didn't ask to be made an example. I just want my son to get better. Verse 49, the official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus makes a statement, unless you all believe, unless you all see the miracles, you won't believe. And the guy just looks back at Jesus and says, just come. Just come and heal my son. He didn't get into a doctrinal argument with him. He didn't start saying, well, come on, explain yourself, Jesus. He just says, please come and heal my son. Please come and heal my son. Jesus said to him, go. 
your son will live. The man, that official, believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. If this was a test, the Herodian passed the test. Jesus said his son was healed, and the official believed the word that Jesus spoke and went. The official asked Jesus to come. Jesus told the official to go. If you were him that day, wouldn't it just make sense to say, no, 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 Jesus, let's come with me. Come with me. Let's go together. You need to come and see him and put your hand on him and do something to make this happen and, and make sure that you're there to make sure that it, to see it through. You've got to come and see it through. You can't just... And in our desperation to save our child, what all would we be willing to ask him to do? Would it be enough for us to just be told, go? But for this man, it was. And the official went believing. And in leaving, in his going home, we have the answer to the question, who is you? Who is the you referring to? Jesus said, unless you all see signs and wonders, you all will not believe. And what is this man not seen? He has seen no miracle. And yet he goes. Believing. He goes. Jesus wasn't talking to him. He was talking at him. But he was talking to the Jews in Galilee. Uh, so, is the official's belief here saving faith? Is it saving faith in Jesus as his Lord and Savior? I think at least we can say maybe. don't have too much more to go off of, but we have some definite contradictions or, or differences between the way that he was interacting with Jesus and the way that many others were. So something's going on here. What all does he believe in at this point? We're not sure. But again, if we played that game of one of these is not like the others... Again, he would get picked out all over again. He's believing without seeing. Nobody else seems to be doing that. Now, let's see what happens next. Verse 51. As he, that Herodian official, as he was going down, okay, going from Cana down to Capernaum, down in elevation, okay, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. This journey on foot would have been over a day. So the time that it would take this man to get home to see what happened, can you imagine that? If Jesus told you to go and you were five minutes from home, that's one thing. How about a day and a half journey? That would be pretty grueling, wouldn't it? On his way home, the servant comes and meets him, if so, in the middle. It would be making sense. It would be about in the middle, right? He meets him there. The Herodian official was going home believing. His servants were coming to him knowing because <laughs> they'd seen it. And so he asked them the hour when he began to get better. Let's see how good this is. Okay, When did he begin to get better? And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour. That's about one in the afternoon. Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. Now, he may have just known that, just happened to remember, or maybe he was really believing that Jesus was doing this. That's what the text says. 
And he knows very well and remembers very well exactly what was happening and where he was and what time it was and expected this to be. And it says here, and this is an interesting way to say this for us in English, and he himself, and he himself believed and all his household. Both words, he and himself, are supplied here because the emphasis is given in the original language to both. There is a he himself in the Greek, just like there is a he himself in the English. Uh, the writer John is doubling down on the pronoun here. It's personal. He's emphasizing his personal belief. And in the same manner of that personal belief, upon hearing of this Jesus, his whole household exercised the same personal belief. Does that make sense? So there's the answer to our question. Verse 54 now says this, This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Remember that John 2.11 says this in a parallel way. This is the first sign that Jesus did. It says that he manifested his glory and that his disciples believed. In a very similar formula at the end of chapter 4, this is the second sign that Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. And now who's the believer? In the same way, this Herodian official and his household are the believers in this text. So this signifies here the ending of this unit, chapters 2, 3, and 4. So what we need to do with that in mind is look at this as a unit and see what all has transpired and what, what we're supposed to learn from the big picture of all of this. Not just in this text alone, but in all of it put together. So, we're going to ask the question, what do we see in John 2, 3, and 4? Number one, we see Jesus doing miracles for some, but not others. Did Jesus do miracles for everybody? Not everybody. Did he do a lot of miracles? More than could be contained in the Gospel of John, he wrote. But not everybody. Uh, interestingly, though, second, second, number two, saving faith... Sincere belief on the part of the people has had nothing to do with the miracles being performed. Does that make sense? They didn't believe because they saw the miracles and then therefore they said, ah, the Messiah. That has yet to happen. There's miracles being done. There's wonder and amazement. There's a hometown party, a homecoming parade for Jesus, but not belief as a result of that. That's not the formula of how it's been happening. Seeing, we're seeing here, seeing is not believing. Think about this. More than the disciples saw the water turn to wine. The disciples were not the only ones who saw that. But they were the only ones who believed. The Herodian believed before the miracle was confirmed. Uh, the only belief, quote-unquote belief, that came out of any of the miracles in Jerusalem was a self-centered, what can Jesus do for me, belief. Which, if you think about it, is dishonoring to Jesus. Which is, if you think about it, rejection of Jesus as Messiah. That's rejection. You can think Jesus is pretty cool and reject him. And that's something we have to think about. Listen, if the extent... If the extent of your faith in Jesus is that he should give you health, 
that he should keep you from getting sick, that he should give you more money, more talent, more points in the game, greater touchdowns, more awards, more success at the workplace, the best stories to brag about at your Thanksgiving and Christmas dinners with family. If that is the extent of your faith in Jesus, you've rejected Jesus Christ. If the extent of your faith in Jesus is good feelings and an easy life, you've rejected Jesus Christ, and he is not your Savior and Lord. Jesus didn't come to give you an easy life. Jesus came to give you eternal life. Not the same thing. Amen? Not the same thing. We have to be careful about what we think about who Jesus is and what he's done for us. So remember, number one, Jesus is doing miracles for some, but not others. Number two, that sincere saving faith had nothing seemingly to do with the miracles performed. And number three, it seems like as though not one person was ready to was ready and willing to receive him as the Messiah. As we go through these chapters, the exceptions we might say would be like John the Baptist, which we would acknowledge he had a head start. <laughs> he was jumping in the womb because <laughs> the Spirit was already going at him. Right, And he, just like any other human being, had to hear the truth of the coming Messiah and put his faith and trust in him, right? The only other possible exceptions would be maybe Andrew and John. Those were the two disciples of John the Baptist who were told by John the Baptist, the Messiah is coming, this is who he is, this is what he's going to do. And then when the Messiah came, John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And those two disciples said, Okay. They were believing before. Does that make sense? And then their belief and their faith that was genuine and sincere just continued right along as it would have made sense to do when the Messiah actually was presented to them. So John the Baptist and Andrew and John are believing before all of this. But everybody who was introduced to Jesus as if for the first time, in this context in John 2, 3, and 4, every one of them seemed to be putting up barriers. Most of the disciples were just minding their own business. Remember, remember Nathaniel said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? The Jews at the temple rebuked Jesus. Nicodemus questioned him. How can these things be? Others of John the Baptist's disciples were getting upset about the loss of their following. They said, they said, John, all of our people are leaving us and they're going to Jesus and his disciples. They didn't like that. It wasn't okay. Remember, John said, I must decrease and he must increase. The Samaritan woman kept building up walls and arguing about religious differences and, and places of worship and all of those kinds of things. And Jesus kept bringing back the idea of those are broken cisterns and I will give you living water. He had to tear down the walls that she was actively trying to build up to keep him away. The Galilean Jews preferred miracles. They wanted Jesus to do stuff for them. And even the Herodian official, what was his first desire coming to Jesus? It was the healing of his son. Something had to happen. Something had to happen. And we see this from chapters 2 through 4. It was written about in John 1, verse 11 through 13. It says, he, Jesus, came to his own, 
and his own people did not receive him. Do we see that happening over and over in these chapters? But do we also say, see this? Verse 12. But to all who did receive him, huh? They didn't receive him, but to all who did. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name. Believing in his name means believing in all that he is. Okay, not just a giver of goodies. The Messiah. God the Son. Lord. All who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. And who were born not of blood. Did it matter whether these people were Jew or Samaritan? Or or Edomites or anything else? Not of blood. Nor of the will of the flesh. How many of these people were doing cartwheels to go find Jesus because they wanted to bow down to him as their Messiah? None of them. Nor of the will of man. Even when people pointed them to Jesus, they said things like, who can come out of Nazareth that's any good? But of God. You have over and over in these chapters, these instances of Jesus being revealed to these people, these people not really wanting to have much to do with it. But then they do. And they believe. And they're changed. Praise God for his grace that intervenes into our hearts that would desire to reject him, who would not seek him out. And yet we hear of the gospel, and God does a miracle, and we say, yes, I believe that Jesus is who he says he is, and I believe. Praise God that that happens, that we see it on display here in John 2 through 4, that we see it on display here as God's people come together to worship him. And then number four, the things that we see in John 2 through 4. We see the insiders being outsiders, and we see the outsiders being insiders. The outsiders being insiders, think of the disciples. Most of them just uneducated fishermen. Galileans. Okay, the Galileans had accents. Uh, When Peter is rejecting Christ or denying Christ when he's being tried, the bystanders hear Peter talk and go, oh, your, your accent, it gives you away. You're one of them. And the accent they had, you know, we talked a little, joked a little bit about the southern y'all, saying, hey, how y'all doing? Now, let's be honest. In our culture, when we hear that southern accent, do we think, ooh, brilliant guy. <laughs> we tend not to, right? We kind of tend to think, oh, bless their heart, or something like that, to use one of their own terms. The same was true for the Galilean accent. When they heard that, they didn't think, oh, that guy is amazing. Where did Jesus grow up, by the way? Galilee. He was fully human, right? Do you think Jesus, fully human, growing up in Galilee, had an astute Jerusalem pharisaical accent? Probably not. Probably not. And his disciples, in like manner. So you got a Galilean leading a bunch of Galileans. Bless their heart. Matthew was a tax collector. These are the people, these are the disciples believing in Jesus in John 2. Uh, And the Samaritans, of all people, they were not supposed to believe in the Jewish Messiah. And yet they all come together and they hear the word and they believe. And they say, surely this is the Savior of the world. They believe. This Herodian official 
this Herodian official. I mean, if you think about it just from a human perspective, this Herodian official is serving King Herod. And so he is high up and over these people and able to rule over them in his capacity with the jurisdiction that he has. He's been placed over the Jewish people. And he's believing in the Messiah that the Jewish people want to reject. How many rungs down the ladder socially did he have to go to believe? Culturally speaking, that's poor form that he would do such a thing. But these are the people who are now the insiders. But what about those insiders in the world's eyes? How about Jesus' hometown? The people who saw Jesus grow up. You ever think about if your brother or sister had never done anything wrong? How would you feel about them? Parents, how would you feel about one of your children if they never did anything wrong? Come on, would you like that a little bit? (laughs) What would those siblings feel about that delight in that child? That may not go over very well in your home. But Jesus... We know Jesus. We hung out with Jesus. We, we learned how to do carpentry with Jesus. We did all these things with Jesus. Man, they should love him. They don't. They want to use him. Even his own brothers in his own household mock him. Those are no insiders. But they should have been. They're not. Of course, those super religious Jews, the Pharisees, the scribes, those working in the temple, Nicodemus being the prime example, the one that we give most of our attention and focus to from John chapter 3. They've been teaching people for how long the contents of the Old Testament of all people who should have known when the Messiah showed up should have been them. But were they, were they believing? Were they going to receive him? Well, the opposite was true. They wanted to uh, not only not believe him, but eventually to destroy him. So the insiders are outsiders, and the outsiders are the insiders. And that should shock us a little bit. That should shock us a little bit. What were, the, what were the characteristics of these things that were the insider and the outsider type things? It wasn't their heart, but it was their appearance their relationships, their location. Now, is that a cultural thing or a spiritual thing? They say that's a cultural thing, right? Now, okay, it's 2018. None of us are in that boat, but we are. What are those cultural things now? What, what is the economic status? What kinds of jobs? What part of town? Which church? Does that make sense? What kinds of homes, what kinds of families tick all the boxes that would make you the prime insider? And and could it be possible, church, that a person could see all of those boxes get ticked and think, I'm good to go? Is it possible that a person could have all those boxes ticked and everybody around them could say, they're good to go? No way, they're not a Christian. Is that possible? Sure is. It sure is. So the final question, the final thought for today, and there's probably more than one, but that's okay. <laughs> what kind of believing is your believing?
Have you welcomed Jesus with honor? Does that make sense? The Galileans welcomed Jesus with no honor. Have I welcomed Jesus with honor? So I'm not asking, I am not asking how long have you been coming to church? I'm not asking how much money you've given. Uh, I'm not asking how much of the Bible you have memorized. No number of Awana badges or stickers on your jacket is entry into the kingdom of heaven, right? I'm not asking how much of the Bible you've memorized. I'm not, I'm not asking how many prayers for healing you've had answered. I'm not asking how many God things you've experienced in your life. You know what I'm talking about? I can't tell you the number of times in counseling even I've asked people about their faith. And a lot of times you get the answer back, well, you know, oh yeah, I believe because this happened and this happened and this happened and this happened and this happened. And what none of that said was that this happened. And that I saw my need and put my faith and trust in Christ. Seeing something amazing that happens out that you say, that must be a God thing. That is not salvation. Did God do that? Maybe. But that doesn't mean that you're saved. I'm not asking how respect, well respected you are. And I'm not asking today how good God makes you feel about yourself, for sure. And remember, if those things, if that list and others, if those things are the reason that we think that we're good with God, John chapter 3 has a word for that. And that word is darkness. It's darkness. It said, people loved the darkness rather than the light. Jesus said to Nicodemus, you're in darkness. So, by God's grace today, please hear. Hear that. If you are in darkness, though it appears as though you are walking in the light, may God graciously open our eyes to the truth of where we would be. And if that is still where you are today, please step out into the light. Let Jesus tear down those walls. We know this. We are all sinners. We're all sinners. You are a sinner. I am a sinner. We have rejected God and gone our own way. Romans 3.23. Get those Awana verses out. You ready? Romans 1.23. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Is that true? We deserve then to be judged because of our sin. Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death. Remember, death means separation. When we die physically, our inner man, the immaterial, separates from the outer man, the, the physical, the material. But there's the second death, and that's what this is talking about. The second death, when we stand before God and he says, depart from me, you work of iniquity, I never knew you. And we are forever separated from God entirely. The wages of sin is death. But Christ... Love everywhere in the Bible where it says, but God, right? <laughs> Christ is our Savior. He is our substitute. He is our sacrificial lamb. Second Corinthians 5.21, he made him, God the Father made God the Son, to be sin who knew no sin. 
God poured our wrath, or his wrath, on our sin, right? His wrath on our sin poured out on Christ on our behalf. Jesus took that for us. When he's in the Garden of Gethsemane saying, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass for me. That's the cup. The cross was the cross, and it was awful for anybody would have had to have gone through that. But nobody else who's ever been on a cross also was separated from the Father who had been the Son of God, right? And bore the wrath of our sin right there and then. Jesus did that in our place for us. And those last two verses that we just quoted from, what's the second half of Romans 6.23? But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Our Lord. That word's key. The rest of Second Corinthians five four, in him we that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Not only did Jesus take the penalty of my sin and your sin on himself on the cross, but in that transaction where Jesus Christ becomes our Lord and Savior, when we've believed and put all of our faith and trust in him, God takes the righteousness of Jesus Christ and gives it to you. You know why God can say, well done, good and faithful servant? Because <laughs> of Jesus. It's one of those like, is that too good to be true? Yes, but no, not with God. God gives the righteousness of Christ to us. And so we don't do good stuff to be able to earn our spot into heaven, right? We do good things because we love the Savior who did it for us. And we want to give our lives to him in thanksgiving, giving him honor and praise as our Lord and Savior. Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in him with all your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is belief. This is faith. This is repentance. Repentance. How is it repentance? That word's not in there. Well, what wasn't Jesus for all of my life up until the moment I put my faith and trust in him? He was never my Lord. So salvation, when God does that work in our hearts, we see Jesus as something that he's never been to us before. He's our Lord. Jesus doesn't have to be my Lord for me to want him to do good stuff for me. Jesus doesn't have to be my Lord for me to want to not get sick or to want to pay bills or to see things that are hard go away. I can ask Jesus for those things and be ticked off with him when he doesn't give it to me. But none of that is honor. None of that is lordship. All of that is rejection. Now, does Jesus answer prayers? Yeah, he does. But do I love Jesus just because he answered that prayer? No, there's something way more important than that that already transpired. My sin was paid for and his righteousness was put to my account. Everything else is nothing compared to that. And so we love him for that. And we walk with him and live for him because of that. Now to all who have been believing who have been following Jesus, let us remember 
be careful that we don't become too much of an insider. <laughs> you can believe in Jesus and start walking the walk and talking the talk and then remember and get distracted by those insider type things and put too much emphasis on those. We have to be careful, church, that we don't become too much of an insider in that way. Remember that if someone puts their faith in Christ even today, if someone puts their faith in Christ today, they'll be just as saved as any one of us are. And for all the same reasons. Would you agree with that? If a person were to put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ today, at this time, before we leave here today, they're going to be just as saved as me and just as saved as you, have just as much righteousness put to their account as me and as you, and have just as much sin wiped away. Because it's all about him and what he's done for us. And so we look eye to eye and say, let's walk together. Let's follow the Savior together. Church, let's stay humble in that way. And pray that Christ will increase and keep proclaiming his gospel to insiders and outsiders alike. Pray with me. Father, we do come to you again thankful for your work. You took a bunch of outsiders who are outsiders for all kinds of reasons, but really for one reason, because we're sinners. And you gave us Jesus. God, thank you for your gift. Thank you for the gift of Christ. Help us, even as we get into this rest of this month and celebrate this time, uh, to remember that uh, Christmas is amazing because the Son of God took on flesh and dwelt among us. And because the Son of God took that flesh and uh, gave himself up for us on the cross. God, help us to be grounded in the truth of the gospel to be thankful because of the truth of the gospel, to be humbled by the gospel, and to have it on the tip of our tongues because we're so amazed by the truth of the gospel that it would impact us in such a way that we have the righteousness of Christ to our account, that you would look at us and say, well done, that you would allow us to be joint heirs with Christ, to be so amazed by that truth that we can't help but be bubbling over, that the, the, the love in our heart that grows would just pour out of our mouths to the people that we are around, that it would be an encouragement to our brothers and sisters in Christ and point those out in the world who are still lost in their, their sin, point them to Jesus Christ. May we honor you in that way today, this week, this month, this year, in our lives for your honor and your glory. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.